everybody. You're listening to Christ Fellowship based in Northeast Florida. We believe that we are broken by life, healed by his grace, and lifted together. Join us as we dive into God's word together each week. Book of Luke, chapter 14, verse 25. I want to begin a series I don't really know how long this series will go, but the idea of this series is dealing with the problem passages of the Bible. I don't know if you've ever had a conversation with anybody, whether they're Christian or they're non-Christian, but many times when we read the Bible, there's a lot of things that make sense. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That one fits, that one works, that one makes sense. We go to the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 23, and we see where it says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That one makes sense. It makes sense everybody's messed up. Then you go to Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. That one makes sense. There's a lot of verses that when we read them, they seem to fit within the whole of the Bible. And then every now and then there comes a part, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, and we begin to go through it and it seems as though it grinds to a halt because in this church we have a certain belief, which is a rather bold and dangerous belief to have. And that is we believe that all scripture is God breathed and is useful for reproof, correction, and exhortation. Basically what that means, reproof. If you're doing something wrong and you know you're doing something wrong, the word of God is useful to let you know stop doing it. We don't know why you're doing it, but stop doing it. Then the word of God is useful for correction. That's when you don't know you're doing something wrong, but you're doing something wrong. You want to do right, and so the word of God comes along and says, I understand what you're going for. Here's the way you ought to do it. And then for exhortation, you're doing well, or even if you're not doing well, let the word of God go ahead and encourage you so that even on your worst days, when you feel like you're the worst Christian ever, the word of God sweeps in and lifts you up. And then on your best days, and you feel like you're the best Christian you could ever be, the word of God walks in and reminds you that the only reason you're doing this well is by the grace of God, not because you're a better person. We believe that from Genesis 1, verse 1, all the way to Revelation 22, 20, we believe that every verse is useful for telling you you're wrong so you can do right. Fixing what you think you're doing right so you can do it better. And letting you know that even when you mess up or when you're having a wonderful day, that God still loves you and nothing you can do can make him love you more or like you less. It's good for all of you. understand that when I read those passages, when I say those things, I'm saying that there is no error in the word of God. There is no mistake in the word of God. I don't think that it becomes the word of God. I don't think that every now and then it is the word of God. I think regardless of if I read it, if I touch it, it is the word of God. It doesn't need me to engage with it to be something that God has spoken into existence. It doesn't need my life to come under attack and circumstances for all of a sudden it to become applicable. Every minute, every moment of every day of all seven billion people on this planet, it is the word of God, whether you choose to exercise its use or not. Now, when you take a belief like that, there's going to be a couple problems that come up because all of a sudden you start getting into the Bible and you see some really messed up 
people who have done some awful things, and yet God still uses them. And you begin to wonder, oh my goodness, is this really the word? How can there be something this awful in there? How can there be something that seems so wrong in there? This seems to disagree with the rest of the Bible that I've read. What do we do when those passages seem to come into conflict with what we understand the character and the person of God to be? Plain and simple, what ends up happening is there needs to be a reconciliation between who God is, what his word says about him, and what we think about him. If there's a part in the Bible that doesn't seem to make sense to us, that doesn't seem to fit with God, that doesn't seem to be quite right, it's not the Bible that needs to be fixed. And it's not God's character that needs to be fixed. It is my understanding, my view, my relationship with God that needs an adjustment so that I can understand him at a deeper level. So let's start out with one of my favorite passages that many times makes no sense to me. So we've got the book of Luke chapter 14 verse 25. Now a great multitude went with him and he turned and said to them, by the way this is what you do when you've got a big mega church. you pick the worst sermon to give at that time. When he looked at them and said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother Wife and children, brothers and sisters, or even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus, what happened to the love? Where'd all, where, where's this hate coming from? Jesus, you see, that's what... Now, we can go ahead and rationalize things in our head. We can go ahead and say, well, he's speaking relative. He doesn't actually want you to hate them. It's not like he wants you to revile them. It is not as though Jesus wants you to go and spit on them and all of these things. And we start to try and fit things into what we understand of God. And what we end up doing is we elevate things past where they ought to be or we diminish the person of God past where he ought to be. I like the Old Testament because the Old Testament was a little bit more direct sometimes. The New Testament, Jesus comes in and he really starts digging into the heart of the issue. God in the Old Testament, before he could dwell in your heart and my heart. The best that he could give us was the standard that we couldn't live up to. And he didn't even really deal with the heart, although that's where he wanted to be. But he said, let's go ahead and start at the easiest place. You can't handle much of my glory. You can't handle much of my holiness. So I will give you the base of your starting point. And he starts out with this commandment where he says, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, I like that commandment because God is looking around and saying, I'm God. No one else. No one gets to be above me. There's no one else you put before me. Now, if we took it in that context, all right, God, I won't put my mother before you. I won't put my father before you. I won't put my wife before you. I won't put my kids before you. I won't put my husband before you. I will not put my brothers or my sisters or my family. I will not put myself before you, God. But second place, right? I can go ahead and be second place, right? That makes sense to us because, all right, God, if I'm going to hate, that just means I've got to bump everybody down to second place. You want to know what the problem with putting everybody in second place? You ever seen the Olympics? We got everybody getting their medals, and they give third place, and then they give second place, and then they give first place, and first place is standing up there, and they're taller than everyone else, or if they're short, maybe they're the same height, but they're still getting that gold medal. And then second place is right next to them. And then third place is pretty close to them, too. You want to know what a better translation of the first commandment is? You'll have no other gods besides me. Not only do I want to be first place in your life, 
Not only do I want nobody to take a point of preeminence over me. Not only do I want not even your own life to take a priority over me as God. I don't want anybody in my radius. I don't even want them on that second place stand. God stands up on that podium and says, I get the first place medal. I get the second place medal. I get the third place medal. There is no one who gets to sit in my radius because I am God. There's no one like me. There's none before me. There's none after me. You ever read those things where he says, I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end? Where do I fit in in there? You don't. Now, I'll get to the good parts in a minute. I'll get to the love parts in a minute. I'll get to the benefits of that in a minute. But the problem is we read the passage where Jesus says, if you want to come and follow me, you better hate your mom. Hate your dad, hate your sister, hate your brother, hate your wife. Sometimes that's easier to do on those days when you're having a bad argument with your wife or husband. Christina probably has an easier time hating me on some days and loving God more than me. He goes, you better hate everything because I want nothing even around me. Now that sounds a little greedy. God, what about my life? Hate your own life. Me. God, what about my family? I've got to take care of them. Hate your family. Me. God, what about my work? I've got to make sure I pray. Hate your work. Me. God, what about my culture? And all the things I grow. Hate your culture. Me. This is a little bit more difficult for us to swallow as humans than the normal presentation of the gospel. Because a lot of times we just say, well, go ahead and put God first. Now, this isn't something you go ahead and tell to someone the day they become a Christian. All right, you just became a Christian. You've never had anything like this in your life before. You feel wonderful because the Holy Spirit has come into you and he's dwelling in you. Now everything else just dies. Sorry for the high that you had. Get rid. Listen, when you're a baby Christian, you get to kind of ease into this a little bit. You want to know how I know that? Because Jesus doesn't say, if you want to be saved. What's the conditions for salvation? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, the same shall be saved. He's not having a conversation about salvation right now. He's having a conversation about, do you want to look like me? See, there's going to be a lot of people that get to heaven that don't look a lot like Jesus because the only condition for entry into eternity with a relationship with God is that do you look at the person of Christ, do you believe that he's Lord, and then God raised him from the dead. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less. It has nothing to do about how you lived your life. It has nothing to do with how well a Christian you are or how awful a Christian you are. Salvation is conditional on one thing and one thing alone, the blood of Christ, and what did you do with it? After that, the question is, do you want to look like Jesus? See, it's one thing to get the benefits of heaven, and I like that, and I don't want to go to hell, and that's all well and good. But the problem is, it's really tough to stay faithful to Christ when I don't want to go to hell. Well, I, I don't want to go, Jesus, I want to be with you in heaven, and I don't want to go to hell. What do you do when all of a sudden you realize, well, I'm not going to hell because I've been saved. Man, I really want to flick that person off right now who cut me off in traffic. Because there are jer What do you do on those days where in your marriage things are getting a little bit tough? I'm not going to hell because I'm already saved and I get to go to heaven and that's fantastic. And since I already know that's all good, I think I'm just going to go ahead and tell my wife off because she is wrong and I am done taking it lying down for the last. What do I do on those days where everything creeps up inside of me that wants to look nothing like Jesus? And all of a sudden I realize that I have been sealed by his grace and by his blood and all. Now, please don't misunderstand. I'm not preaching once saved always. 
always saved. That's not the deal right now. I do believe you can forfeit your salvation. But the thing is, is if the idea that I am saved were enough to keep me from sinning, were enough to keep me from acting out, were enough to keep me from doing things that are anti-God, then the moment anybody is saved, they'd stop living like hell, wouldn't they? The problem is most of us have a tendency to live like how we used to live before Christ. And let me put this in there, too. If you grew up in church, you're just as bad. You might not have had a before Christ moment where all of a sudden you came to Christ, but that doesn't mean you weren't born into a world where sin didn't stain you and begin to conform and contort your ideas and your understanding of God. The reality is, is that most of us live our lives in a place where we're never going to spend eternity. You ever wonder what hell's like? Best description I ever heard. I understand that there's fire that doesn't get quenched. I understand that there's all those things. I understand there's the eternal loneliness and the eternal darkness. You want to know the worst part about hell? It's twofold. Number one, you're perfect in hell. And I don't mean that you're perfect in everything you do. How do you think you live eternally without a perfect body that can endure eternity? Everyone, when they stand before the judgment throne, when God is done with everything, they're going to get a body that can survive for eternity. So I'm going to be in hell in my perfection of a body for eternity. And then there's the second part about it. Not only will I be keenly aware that there is a God who loved me so much that he was willing to lay down his life for me. But everything that made me awful in this life, and there's things in all our lives that make us awful. Arrogance, gluttony, lust, anxiety. Preacher, anxiety is not bad. Be anxious for nothing. Okay, all the, all the things that make the worst of you awful. And I'm not saying this to make you feel bad about yourself. Please understand, this is not a conversation of shame. The reality of hell is not about the fire. It's not about the darkness. It is that I am perfectly and keenly aware of a God who could have saved me. And unfortunately, I must now spend eternity with the worst of who I am. And nothing can stop me. Where the worm does not die, it's, it's that the worst of me just irrigates itself through me. It doesn't relent. That everything that I would fight so hard to strive and not give into. You understand that people who aren't saved, they still have this concept of a conscience that God has placed in everybody. And anybody who is not saved, they still have points where they won't cross. Where they have this idea of right and wrong. And they'll still wrestle within themselves. Well, I don't want to do that. And I don't think that's okay. And then they find themselves giving it. What happens when the conscience that has been holding you back from the worst you can be is suddenly gone and all you can do is is given to the worst desires that you have. Nothing can stop you, and there's no reprieve or forgiveness. Not only are you giving yourself over to all of the worst of yourself, but there is nothing to give you rest from the worst of yourself. There is nothing to give you a sense of forgiveness from the worst of yourself. The worst of hell is that I must spend eternity perfectly with myself in the worst of myself. What's that got to do with now? When you decide to not live like Christ... You're choosing to engage with what you would be in hell. 
Again, this isn't a conversation of heaven or hell. This is a conversation of do you want to look like Jesus and have as much of heaven now or do you want to have as much of hell now? I'm not saying you're going to get it perfect every day. I'm not saying that you're going to even get it mostly right every day. That's not the conversation we're going for. We're not going for you've got to live perfect so that you don't feel the worst of it. No, the conversation is are you willing to put everything aside in such a way that it doesn't even come close to Jesus. That if I were to put him up on a podium up at the Olympics where he's getting a medal of gold that not even anybody would be standing on his left and his right. That the closest person to him wouldn't even be the person giving him the medal but it would be everybody in the crowd because he is solely deserving of everything. That he is so great, that he is so awesome, that he is so powerful that I would shove everything out from even his radius and say, God be the center. It's not about salvation. He says, do you want to be my disciple? Do you want to look like me? Do you want to know what it is where I can walk through my day and not have the pain of all the fear of life crushing down on me? Do you want to know what it is to walk in the day where even when I feel like I'm waking up crying and I'm going to bed crying and it feels as though the chaos won't relent and the chaos won't rest? Do you want to know what it is to live in such a way that even though those are the emotions you're experiencing, you can still know that God is there for you, that he is still caring for you, that he is still watching over you? Do you want to live in such a way that even when everybody has turned their back on you, when they've looked at you and they've been your best friend for the past three years and now they're pretending like they've never met you before and you feel all alone as though there's no one around you. Do you want to know what it is to live in such a way where the worst of life comes and strikes a killing blow to you and yet by the grace of God you live? Because life is relentless. It's not going to slow down just because I'm having a bad day. It's not going to be less aggressive towards me just because I'm a Christian now. If anything, it'll become more aggressive. And the reason Jesus says, I need you to hate everybody else in comparison to me. They can't even be close to me. They can't even be next. The reason he says that is because if I put him so much at the center, then when Christina comes to me, whom I love very much, and she tells me, I want to do something that's anti-God. I'm not saying this has happened. I'm just giving you the example. The person I love most in this room is Christina. You understand that. Compared to her, the rest of you are here. I love her the most. All right? But when she comes to me, now let's look at the Bible. A man will leave his mother and father, and the two will become one flesh. The closest intimate relationship a person can have outside of a relationship with God is with their spouse. The two shall become one flesh. Let's go to the New Testament where Paul is writing in Ephesians and he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Well, what did Christ do when he was loving the church? Well, let's start out with the worst thing he did that I would never want to do. He got down on his hands and knees. I thought he was the king of all glory. I thought Jesus is the king of all creation. He doesn't kneel before anybody. Gets down on his hands and knees with a bunch of nasty filthy men and begins to wash their crusty, sandy, Galilean feet. They've been walking around all that week out in the hot sun. And she comes to me. Love her as Christ loved the church. Wash her feet. Love her as Christ loved the church. Be willing to take up a cross and die for her. Love her as Christ loved the church. You want to know what that means, men? Who was the one nailing Jesus to the cross? the Jews, not the Romans. It was the church. 
So if I'm going to love Christina the way that Jesus loved the church, and there's times that she's being nasty to me and awful to me and murderous to me to the point where it feels like she's the one crucifying me, he says, be willing to look at her and say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they... She, for her, I have to be willing to do what Jesus did where he says, and then he breathed his last. For her, death is the highest service I can give her. I'm not saying physically die. I get that. But look what Jesus does when he says, love your wife the way I love the church. Then how in the world do I, how in the world do I reconcile? You must hate your wife along with love your wife as Christ. Do you see the problem all of a sudden? Do you, do you see the issue that's coming in all of a sudden? Honor your father and mother, for this is the first commandment with a promise. You know what I don't like about that commandment? It says, honor your father and mother. It doesn't say children, honor your father and mother. That would have been nice, because then once I move out of the house, all right, mom, all right, dad, peace out, I'm done with you. Remember all those times you said I couldn't have ice cream? Ice cream every day now. And by the way, I'm going to remind you that I didn't like it when you did this, and I didn't like it when you did this, and I think you're stupid. We've all said that as teenagers. I get that. But as an adult, when you understand what they've been going through trying to raise you and keep you alive, and you still have that attitude, it's a little bit dishonoring there. I wish God would have said, children, honor your mother and father. He doesn't say that. He says, honor your mother and father, which means when the in-laws come over. Because remember, I married her, right? The two shall become one flesh. So if we're one... Her mom and dad are now my mom and dad. So not only does she have to honor them because she's their daughter, but in my brazen foolishness, I've added her parents to now the additional of who I have to honor. So I've got to honor my parents who I grew up with, and they grounded me 90% of the time. Not that I didn't deserve it, but they grounded me a lot, and I was a little bitter about that. So I've got to honor my parents, even though I'm an adult, and I've got to honor her parents, even though the most connection I have to them is through her. Hate your mother and father. Honor your mother and father. You must hate your mother and honor your mother. Are we starting to see the problem that comes in? Are we starting to see that sometimes this thing is a little bit more complex than we really give it credit for? You want to know one of the biggest reasons that people don't really like Christians, specifically in the United States? Because when we're confronted with the difficulty of the Bible, and it is a difficult thing to be confronted with, the reason many people don't care for Christians in the United States, it's not the hypocrisy. And the reason it's not the hypocrisy is because hypocrisy is not, here's the rule and I fail to live up to it. That's not hypocrisy. That's reality. Here's the standard. I understand I'm missing the standard. I'm striving for the standard, but I'm not perfect enough to, that's not hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is when I say, here's the rule for everyone, and then, but I'm so special I don't have to listen to it. That's hypocrisy. It's when you know the rules, you apply it to everyone, but you're the special, so you don't have to do, no, it's, that's not what turns most people off to Christianity. What turns most people off to Christianity is when they are confronted with the hard points of the Bible. 
And they come to a Christian saying, I need an answer because there's something about this God. There's something about this Jesus that's attractive to me, but I cannot seem to understand how this point of the Bible makes sense with a loving God. You want to know what they're looking for? They're not necessarily looking for you to give them the right answer. They're just looking for an honest answer where you say, I wrestle with that myself. I struggle with that myself. I don't know the reasons and I'm still working through that, but let me tell you about the faithfulness that God has given me. It's not about whether or not I can get the right answer right now. It's about can I point to who the right answer is. Most people get turned off to Christianity in the United States because we're not willing to give them the honesty that sometimes we don't know. And then we pretend. And you can only pretend for so long. Honor your mother and father. Hate your mother and father. One flesh. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. Well, hate your wife. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Now what do I do? You said, God, I've got to hate my husband, and now you're telling me to submit to my husband. How do I hate my husband and submit to my husband at the same time as Christ did it unto God? And keep something in mind. Submission is not mindless being beaten down and saying nothing. Because Jesus in the Garden of Eden submits to the, or in the Garden of Gethsemane, submits to the Father when he looks at him and says, Dad, I don't want to be crucified. You didn't know Jesus had a conversation where he said, I don't like this idea, God. Dad, I don't want to die. Jesus, you're God. You're eternal. You're immortal. This was your idea. God, I don't want to die on the cross. Nevertheless, if this is the only way, I'll do it. You understand submission isn't a lot of times what we've made it out to be. It really looks more like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane submitting to the Father, making his mind and his heart and his desperation and his emotions known, and at the end of it saying, but if this is where it's going, I'll do it. Hate your husband. Submit unto your husbands as unto the Lord. Hate your husband. Sub- and if you do likewise, now we're talking about Sarah and Abraham, who submitted to Abraham. Sarah called him Lord, which not in the same way we have that big L, not God, Lord, but simply saying that she is the one that God placed over her as protector, provider, and all the other things. The Hebrew writer says that when you do likewise as Sarah did, you are her daughter. What did Sarah get to do? She got to bring in to life and to existence. Her womb was the one that God used to birth Israel. Hate. Honor your mother and father. What about this one? Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Must hate your sons and daughters. Sometimes that one feels easy while my kid is yelling at me. I'm like, all right, lock you in a room, go yell in there by yourself for an hour and a half. Hey, fathers, don't provoke your sons and daughters to anger. Let's go back into Deuteronomy where it says spending time with your children, not just spending time with your children, but it's talking specifically to the fathers. And it says, as you sit around the dinner table with your children, as you take walks with your children, teach them all that the Lord has done for you. Bind them around your heart. He's talking about a dad and a mom who are so involved that they're there for dinner time, sitting with the kids, engaging with them in a relationship. Even if all the kid is giving them is, what'd you do in school today? Nothing. He's poking at his at his broccoli, not really wanting to eat. Well, did you have any fun today? No, not really. Did you get any homework? Yeah, I got to. Even when the kid is being the brat and just not even paying attention to you and ignoring you, he says, have 
time where you're in their orbit and their purview. Make them take walks with you. It doesn't have to be a walk. Make them do something with you where it's intimate time, where it's them and the parents so that they get to know you, so that you can pour into them and develop them. And in the same breath, hate your sons and daughters. How in the world do I live in such a way that husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church? How do you live in such a way that wives submit to your husbands as unto the Lord? How do you live in such a way, honor your father and mother, and at the same time fulfill the command that Jesus gives where he says, if you want to look like me, all these other things in your life, they don't even get second place. What about third place? They don't get third place. What about fifth place? They don't get fifth place. Well, God, what place do they get? They don't get a place. How do I love your wife as Christ loved the church? She doesn't get a place. You want to know how it works? I can't love her the way that Jesus loves me unless I have put Christ in a place of my life that is so central that nothing else comes close to him. I can't love her the way I'm supposed to until I completely move her away from the place that Christ gets to be in my life. If I want to love her the way that Christ loved the church, then the only way I'm going to accomplish that is if I get her out of the picture. If I want to raise my kids in a way that honors God, the only way I'm going to raise them in a way that honors God is if I shove them so far away from Christ that I run to him and they don't get to influence my relationship with him. She doesn't get to influence my relationship with him because what ends up happening when Christ becomes the sole thing at the center of your life, there's no sharing, there's no radius, there's no nothing there. When he becomes the only thing at the center of your life, what ends up happening is he'll send you back from him to those places in your life that you had to sacrifice. And he'll say, now that I'm the only one here, let me show you how to love your wife. See, the problem is when I've got Christina in there next to me as second place and Jesus in first place, all of a sudden when I'm trying to ask Jesus, Jesus, how do I love my wife? And he tells me how to love her. But she, not might, she might not like the way that Jesus asks me to love her. And all of a sudden she gets to run her mouth. Well, I don't like this. This isn't love. It's not about whether or not she thinks it's love. It's not about what she likes or what she doesn't like. It's about, sweetheart, this is how Jesus told me to love you. Whether you like it or not, this is the best way I can love you. Well, it doesn't feel like you. When I go to my kids, mom, dad, it doesn't feel like you're taking care of me. It doesn't feel like you love me. All my friends get to do this and I don't get to do that. Son, daughter, it's not about what you think is love. It's not about what you think I'm supposed to do as a parent. In fact, it's not even about what pop culture or psychologists or even the best pastors in the world think it's about when it comes to raising a kid. The only one that has a say in how I'm supposed to raise you, son, daughter, is God. Brother, sister, why don't you talk to us anymore? Why don't you come do the same things with you? Because when I got so close to Jesus, as much as I love my siblings, he said that you can't take a place of preeminence over my spouse. And so the only way I can do that is to move you back away from my spouse so that she comes priority. I just solved a lot of problems with the in-laws right there. Just so you know. Mom, Dad, 
It doesn't feel like you honor us anymore. It doesn't feel like you give us the respect for our due. The problem is, mom and dad, is that when I got so close to Jesus and you had so much influence in my life that you were still directing me what to do. It's not that I don't think you're wise. It's not that I don't think you haven't lived longer than me and have good input to give me. The problem is, is that even though you might have some good practical sense to give me, when I got so close to Jesus, he started saying something contrary to what you were saying. And so the only thing I can do is look at you and say, I love you, mom and dad. I respect you, mom and dad. But I can't do what you're asking me to do because it contradicts the way Christ is asking me to do something. He is saying that there should be no voice in the radius that when he starts talking to you, no one else can have any influence. He says, you want to know what I look like? Get rid of everybody else. You want to know why you got to get rid of everybody else? Because everybody's got their own idea of what Jesus looks like. And everybody's telling you what Jesus looks like. And everybody's telling you how Jesus would do things. Isn't that your favorite thing to hear? If Jesus were here today, he... I love that one. Really? Just by show of hands, before you ever read it, how many of you thought that Jesus, when he's healing a blind man, would spit in the mud and shove it in the man's eye sockets? Anyone? We would have thought, Jesus, how are you going to heal this blind man? I'm just going to go over there, and I'm going to lay my hands on him, and I'm going to say, in the name of me, be free. In the name of me, you can see. That's what we would have think. You know what Jesus does? He goes over to this man, and here's the crazy part. Some scholars contend, a good somewhere down the middle, about 50-50. He's blind. That's not the contention. Some scholars contend that it wasn't that he was blind, but that the translation says he had no eyes. Just these vacant, open eyes cavities. So Jesus, when he spits in the mud, and how much are you going to have to put of water into dirt to get that thing so that it's malleable? Because he's dealing with clay that's in the middle of Israel. We're not talking about just some nice sand at the beach where you just get it a little bit wet and all of a sudden you've got this nice ball that you can build like a sandcastle with. We're talking about hardened clay that's going to need some moisture before that thing becomes malleable. And Jesus goes up and starts, I'm not going to make the sound, imagine it yourself. Rolls that thing around until he's got something that looks like an eye. He's probably thinking to himself, man, the last time I had to do this with dirt was when I was in the Garden of Eden making Adam and Eve. He takes that thing and he shoves it in the eye socket. And then brushes away. And all of a sudden the man's got eyes. Everybody's got a good idea of what Jesus looks like. The problem is good idea is not the right thing. The, the, the problem is, is that Jesus says, if you want to look like me, you're going to have to get rid of what everybody else says about me. If you want to look like me, you're actually going to have to get rid of what you think about me because I got a lot more to show you than you can ever begin to guess or imagine. So if you want to look like me, you can't even be in the radius. Jesus, how am I supposed to be close to you? But at the same time, I have to hate my own life. He said, that's the deal. If you want to find out what it is to live like me, you're going to have to get rid of who you think you are so that I can start changing you. The issue about this hate is that at the first moment it begins to happen. If I've never done it before, the first time that I actually hate my wife's in favor of the Son of God, the Son of Man, the first time I actually do that, to her it's going to feel as though I despise her because she doesn't have influence in my life anymore, only Jesus does. 
if I've never done it before, the first time I do it, it is going to feel as though I despise her. But the more faithful I am to it, what ends up happening is he starts redirecting me. Let me show you how to really love your wife. For a season, she's going to think I hate her when really what I'm doing is trying to learn how to love her the way God wants me to love his daughter. For a season, my kids might think I despise them when what's really happening is the whole time while they feel nothing but hate is all I'm doing is loving them in a way that I could have never imagined unless I had first gone to the feet of the father and said, God, how do I love this son you've treasured? you've gifted me with? How do I take care of these boys that you've entrusted me with? God, how do I? The first time you ever decide that someone in your life who has been circling the radius of Christ, the first time you kick them out, to them it's going to feel like hate. When Jesus is saying you're going to have to hate, what he's saying is if you really want to look like me, be ready to be accused of hating people. Now, here's the deal. There are some people who legitimately act out in hatred. The worst signs I've ever seen have been signs held up at funerals, signs held up in parades, signs held up in, in whatever, in protest, when there's some type of gay event going on or some LGBTQIA plus or however many letters they got going on, and people will stand over there on the sideline with signs that read, God hates fags, or you're ready to burn in hell, or enjoy hell, and on and on and on, and all these hate-filled signs. Listen, the sin might be wrong, but I don't see anywhere where Jesus said, run out to the person who's living in sin and make sure they understand how much I hate them. Crying out loud, a woman is brought to him half clothed with just a blanket laying in front of him because she was caught in the middle of adultery. You understand what the middle of adultery is, right? It's not like she was getting ready to go to the house. In the middle of adultery, she's dragged out naked with nothing but a blanket covering her. And he looks at her and says, daughter, where are your accusers? Neither do I. She deserved to be stoned if you go and read the Bible. If you find a woman in an act of adultery, stone her. I assume they had already stoned the man because he wasn't there. That's the only rational reason I can guess why he wasn't there. For all I know, they were probably just being sexist. We got the girl. And Jesus looks at her and says, if after you've spent time with Jesus, he sends you out to sneer at people, then you haven't spent the right time with Jesus. If after you spend time with Jesus and he sends you back to your wife and in loving your wife, you begin to condescend to her, then you missed what he was trying to tell you. Because in every aspect where he sends you back to people to love them, after you have forsaken all, that's what the end of this series of passages says, after you have forsaken all to be just with him, it's when you're done with that, when he sends you back to people, and you sneer and look down and condescend to them, then you missed it. Because the only one who's ever had a right to sneer at me, to look at me in disgust, the only one who's ever had a right to spit on me, the only one who's ever had a right to strike me down where I stand, the only one who's ever had a right to laugh at any pain I experience, let himself die on a cross. And as he breathed his last, was thinking about me, saying, one day the Holy Spirit's going to touch that little boy's heart. 
And the reason I died is going to come into a reality. You don't go to look like Jesus and then come back out in spite. But you're never going to look like Jesus until everyone around you, at least for a moment, feels as though you've left them. And let me leave you with this very, very practical thing very quickly. Let's use the wife and husband example very fast. If anyone wants to come after me and does not hate their wife, notice he does not say divorce their wife or divorce their husband or leave their he is not talking about doing some type of physical severance. It is not the asininity or the foolishness or the stupidity that some people will run out. Well, if I've got to hate my wife, I'd better sign these divorce papers because she's not a Christian and I am a Christian and I want, or he's not a Christian and I am a Christian, so I've got to divorce him. No, the Bible is filled with reasons why you ought not to do that. It has to all work together or it's not the Bible. The Bible all has to work as a singular whole or it's simply not the word of God. So when you find an area in your life where God is pointing out to you, this person in your life is too close to me. Pretending I'm Jesus right now. This person in your life is too close to where I stand. When God points that person out to you, keep something in mind. When you move them out of that center, it ought not to be done in malice or spite or cruelty. Even removing someone from the radius of Christ so that it's just you and him at the center is done as an act of love. I understand we might not get it when people do that to us. I understand we might act like children. Dad, why are you doing this to me? I'm doing this to you so that something worse doesn't come down the line and end you. I hate when Judah goes running into the middle of the street. I cannot stand it. It is the worst thing. And sometimes I yell at him scared, and sometimes I'll come up to him, and I will just put my thumb down right in his shoulder blade, and I'll just make sure he feels pain. And he looks at me and says, why did you do that? And he said, because it's the fourth time I've had to tell you not to run out in the street. And I want you to understand that there's a pain associated with running out into that street so that you stop doing it. Because if you don't stop doing it, there's going to come a time where I'm not around and some idiot's not paying attention, and you're going to run into the street, and it's going to be a much worse pain than what I just put in your shoulder. They might not like when we push them out of the center. But if it's done as an act of love and grace so that I can at least be at the center with Jesus and he can make me look like him, ultimately, one day that person will see that what I just did, while it feels painful to them, was done so that they could experience someone who's been transformed by the glory of Christ.